Hello, and welcome to the Phuket Stories Podcast. I'm your moderator, Saigon Steve. On this special podcast episode, we'll talk with military personnel who were stationed in Vietnam and talk with them about their extraordinary experiences. This podcast is pre-recorded, but you're invited to participate on future podcasts by emailing your contact information to phuketstories at gmail.com. That's phuketstories at gmail.com. So let's get started with today's special guest. Our guest today is U.S. Army retired Major General Robert H. Scales, Jr. Bob Scales, can you imagine calling a general by their first name, served for 34 years in the United States Army, including a tour in Vietnam. In Vietnam, he commanded an artillery battery overlooking the notorious Hamburger Hill, where he and his soldiers were attacked and overrun by nearly 100 North Vietnamese soldiers. His resume is impressive. He's a West Point graduate, a Ph.D., a former commandant of the United States Army War College, an author, consultant, and speaker. And coincidentally, we were both young cadets at the same time at Fork Union Military Academy in Virginia. Hello, General Scales. That was a long time ago. Yeah, it sure was, uh, Steve. It's, you know, think about that. It's over over half a century ago that we were cadets at Fort Union. Bob Scales, may I call you Bob, or should I call you General Scales? Sure, Bob is fine. Because it's uh, it's really out of character for an enlisted man to call a, a general by his first name. Yeah, but, you know, that was a long time ago. Right. Well, I'll call you Bob, and let's hope we get through this okay. Bob Scales, so you went to Fork Union, same time I was there, and you were there uh, at your own doing, or did your parents come up with this idea? No, it was my idea. I I wanted to go to West Point, and the only way I could get an appointment was through a presidential appointment process. And the surest way to do that was to go to a junior ROTC military high school, and so that's why I went as a means to an end. Do you have fond memories of Fork Union? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I enjoyed it. It taught me how to study, which helped me get through West Point. You know, it put a little discipline in me before I went off to West Point. So it actually did me some good. You know, a lot of people say, well, you were sent to a military academy like you were sent to prison, but uh, that was not the case, was it? No, no. I had a purpose in mind. It was all driven by my plan to get into the academy because, I, you know, I couldn't have gotten an appointment from a political you know, a congressman or a senator. So you went to West Point, but you had this training from Fork Union. What was it like in your first days at West Point? Well, it got me in trouble because I knew more than my classmates did. And instead of that being a good thing, it turned out to be a bad thing because upperclassmen picked on me. Yes, I heard a a story that you told on the Internet where you were picked as the uh, alumni of the year at Fork Union, and you gave this talk about one of your first days at the West Point where you went out to formation before everybody else. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, of course, I knew how to shine shoes and get dressed quickly. So uh, when Reveille sounded, 
I got up out of bed, put my clothes on, and was the first guy in the company in formation. Well, that wasn't very smart because all these upperclassmen came to pick on me. They thought you were a show-off. They thought I was trying to show off, exactly. And, of course, that's the last thing you want to do at West Point is to stand out of the crowd for any reason. You know what I mean? Well, that's true throughout the whole military. You just want to be a face in the crowd, right? There you go. So tell me, you went to West Point, and when you graduated, what was your commission? I was commissioned as second lieutenant in the field artillery, and, and I decided to go to Germany first instead of Vietnam. So I got to Vietnam in 1968 instead of 1967. So we were both in Vietnam at exactly the same time. I went there in... Yeah, Auburn. that's right. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. What a coincidence. I left Charleston, South Carolina Air Force Base on August the 5th, 1968. And, of course, we went over the international dateline. So I arrived August the 7th. So that's about the same time oh. you were there, right? Just about almost exactly the same, yeah. So our paths have crossed a few times. Bob Scales, I always ask people on this podcast, what was it like when you got off the airplane in Vietnam for the first time? Well, what I remember was how hot it was. I mean, it was unbearably hot. And, of course, over the, over the months you get used to the heat, but when you first get off the airplane, it's unbelievable. You go from this air-conditioned plane to this incredibly hot, you know, Camp Eagle cantonment area. And it was just, uh, it was awful. I thought to myself, good God, what am I getting into? Everybody gives me exactly the same story. It's the heat and the smell of the country when you get off the plane. Yeah, I didn't notice the smell, but I sure noticed the heat. And I've also told people that on my first day getting off the plane, I said to myself, I'm not going to be leaving this place. This is where it's going to end. Did you have that kind of a yeah. feeling? Oh, no, no, because I knew I was going to get a responsible job. I was a captain at the time, and so I was looking forward to some sort of command position, and that's pretty much all I was thinking about at the time. The idea of the environment really had very little effect on me. So where in country were you? Well, I landed in uh, Saigon, but I got moved up immediately to Camp Evans in northern i near the DMZ, and that's where I spent my year as a battery commander. So what are the duties of a battery commander? Well, my first battery was a headquarters battery at Camp Evans. And then uh, the Hamburger Hill battle started to heat up, and, and one of the battery commanders was killed. In fact, I was on R&R &R at the time in Hawaii with my wife when I, I got a, a, a telex that told me to leave R&R &R immediately and fly back to Vietnam to take command of B battery, and of course I'd only been on R&R &R with my wife for four days, so it was kind of a, a terrible thing. Anyway, so I got on the next C-130 uh, out of Hawaii, and I flew back to Vietnam, and two days later I was in command of B battery, the 319th. Was it your idea to go to Vietnam, or did it come from higher up? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm a West Point graduate, and so that's what we did. I think all but 20 of my classmates served in Vietnam. So when you got to Vietnam, what was it like the, the, the very first night? Did you get to sleep, or are you worried about uh, where you were? No, no, no. I, I wasn't too concerned. Uh, you know, I uh, was able to get some sleep, get over my jet lag. It was only the, the next day that I was on a plane up to my unit at Camp Evans, so uh, my time in Saigon was very limited. 
So on that base, when you said Camp Evans, was that the camp that was overlooking Hamburger Hill, or was that later on? No, that was our, our the brigade headquarters on the coast. Hamburger Hill was in the Ashaw Valley, which was about 30 or 40 miles west of there. So you were at Camp Evans, and then you got orders to go to Ashaw Valley, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh-huh. That took about five months. I was there as a headquarters battery commander for five months, and then when the B battery commander was killed, when his firebase got overrun, they immediately put me in charge since I'd already had command experience in the battalion, and they had to fill the job very quickly. And the battery that was overrun was badly mauled, so I had to literally rebuild the battery from scratch when I took over, uh, and that was actually during the Battle of Hamburger Hill. You were in charge of a big operation. Yeah, I was the direct support battery commander to the 3rd of the 187th, the Rockassons, and that was the unit that stormed Hamburger Hill. So I was sort of in charge of not only shooting for him with my battery, but coordinating all the all the fires, mostly aviation and, and artillery, in support of that operation. So is it true that you were in the 101st Airborne? That's correct. Yeah, I was the 3rd Brigade, 101st Airborne Division. Well, that is the division that was in the documentary Band of Brothers, wasn't it? Yeah, that was World War II. That was the first of the 506. Very distinguished division with huge battle honors. Tell us about the day that you were involved in this enemy attack by the North Vietnamese. Yeah, that was uh, the morning of the 14th of June, 1969, and I was the co-located with the brigade headquarters for the 3rd Brigade that was fighting in the battle for Hamburger Hill. And uh, about 3 in the morning, uh, this whole unit from the 29th NVA Regiment uh, attacked our firebase and overran it, basically ran through my battery and up the other side and then fought with the infantry on the other side of the firebase and then disappeared through the wire. It was about, the whole thing that lasted about, oh, maybe an hour to an hour and a half, but the most intensive part was early on in the first few moments of the attack when they broke through our outer perimeter. It was pretty hectic. So did it become hand-to-hand combat? Yeah, I mean, we were right right next to each other, although we we used uh, M16s and pistols instead of bayonets. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was face-to-face, basically. But they basically knew that when they crossed the wire, it was the end for them. I would say so. We killed a lot of them. Gosh, I can't, I, I forget now. You can look it up in the New York Times archive, but, uh, but we, yeah, we killed a lot of them, but then they killed a lot of us, too, so it was a... It was a tragic event for my battery. My battery started off with 105 soldiers, and when I left it six, seven months later, there was only 29 left. So it just tells you the sort of casualties that we took. And one of the ironies of that particular battle was we gave back that Hamburger Hill shortly thereafter, right? Well, that wasn't the purpose of the, of the battle, to take the hill. The purpose of it was to kill the North Vietnamese. And we did that in huge, huge aggregations. Remember, Hamburger Hill straddled the Laotian border, and so they had a base camp just over the border. And as we killed these guys, uh, more would filter in from the base camp. So 
we never really figured out how many we killed, but it was substantial. Well, it's kind of reminiscent of Sarabachi in uh, Iwo Jima. They were up there and... Yeah, they came out of... Yeah. Yeah, they dug themselves into these deep caves, which were pretty much impervious to uh, anything but 2,000-pound bombs from from F-4s that would collapse those bunkers. So they were very, very well protected, and they knew we were coming, of course. And I read somewhere that you said you uh, had lobbed at least 1,100 105 howitzers at them? Yeah. Oh, more than that. I I probably fired 1,000 rounds a day. That's what I mean. So you figure we were constantly shooting and uh, shooting pretty much at the same spot for that whole battle. Were they returning fire at the same time, or were they under... Yeah, well, yeah, they were. Uh, in fact, the night they attacked us, uh, they uh, they started it off with mortar fire and uh, 122-millimeter rocket fire to try to keep us keep our heads down. So I remember that very... And they kept up rocket and artillery fire for the rest of the day. One of my soldiers was killed by a rocket round that landed right right in the middle of my battery position. What's that like to someone who has not been in combat? People in Vietnam, they, they were in staff support or something, but they weren't face-to-face like you were. What is that like when you look into the eyes of the enemy or they're trying to kill you with their shells? What's that feeling like? Well, for me, it was completely neutral. I, I don't just something about my character. I, those things don't bother me. I don't really think about it. I, uh, I, mean, I, I knew what the odds were of being killed by, our, by mortars and rocket fire, and they're pretty remote. So it was just background, though, as far as I was concerned. The hard part was having to kill these guys up close. But it, it went by so quickly, so fast, that you didn't have time to think about it or to take counsel of your fears. You just did it. So is that what they teach at West Point, uh, that it becomes a tactical? No, no, no. It's just, it's just built into you, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been through it, but no, there wasn't a shaking of fear thing you, you see in the movies all the time. You just stood up and fired your weapon and hoped they didn't hit you. It says here you were awarded the Silver Star for this encounter. Yeah, I was, yeah. yeah. In fact, I was awarded the medal by the division commander later on that same day. Isn't that amazing? Incredible, incredible. There's also a sad story. One of your buddies that you went to West Point with, you saw him get killed there in, in Vietnam. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was Mike Snell, my West Point classmate. Uh, he and I had actually had some beer earlier that day and, and had dinner together. And so uh, I was probably the last West Pointer he saw before he marched back to his bunker. And he was killed by a mortar round that landed uh, right next to him. So he didn't have much of a chance once that round went off. You talk about uh, a little a lack of emotion during the battle, but when you see your buddy who went to West Point with, and you see him there in his last moments on on Earth, what do you feel emotionally? Well, I mean, I was saddened, but again, it's it's hard to explain how deadened your emotions are in combat. I really didn't start to think about this until years later when I contacted his parents. In terms of shock, there was no shock, it was emotion. There was so much going on around me at the time that you don't have time to sit down and and contemplate these things. You've got a job to do. What's also interesting is you're almost like General Patton. You didn't get wounded there, did you? 
No, no, I got blown over by by uh, two uh, of those satchel chargers that they threw at you. But no, it was you know somebody said, well, you ought to get a Purple Heart for being blown over, and I said, no, I got guys getting Purple Hearts for losing their lives. I'm not going to put in for a Purple Heart for something that puny. So I, I never even bothered to put in for the award. So you're in Vietnam. You did your 12 months, I assume. Yep. And when you left Vietnam, you were were you above captain, or were you a captain when you left Vietnam? No, I was a captain. Yeah, I went back to the States, reunited with my wife, and we went off to Fort Sill to go to the advanced course, where after commanding four batteries, I went to school to learn how to command a battery. It was kind of a waste of time. I was at a dinner table one time with some generals, and I said, what's it like to be on that fast track. How do you get on that fast track to be a general? And they told me, they said, if you really want it, you don't get it. It's the people that try to go after it don't get it. I assume you were one of these people that were picked out of the out of the uh, the formation and said, this guy's general material. No, I think that's right. In fact, of my West Point classmates, only one came from the top 5%, the academically superior cadets. Most of us were low in the class. There are 13 of us who made general, and and most of us were fairly low in the class, actually, except for Wes Clark. He was the number one man in the class. He was the one who really stood out in my class. But when you were a captain, it didn't go through your mind that one day I am going to be a general, right? No, 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 no. I was just having fun being in the Army. So you come back from Vietnam, you're back in the world. What was your assignment there? Well, I went to be an instructor. Uh, for a short time at the engineer school at Fort Belvoir because I guess because of my combat record I was rewarded with uh, a year and a half studying history at Duke University where I, that's where I got my master's and later my PhD after I left the school. In 82 you were a field artillery battalion commander in Korea. What was that like? Right. Yeah, I had three tours in Korea. First as a staff officer in 1976 and then a battalion commander in 82, 83, and then as a assistant division commander in the early 90s. So I'm very familiar with Korea since I had I'd spent so much time there. Plus, my father fought in the Korean War and was there in combat for over two years. So my family has a very strong connection to Korea and the Korean Army. Uh, now, I really enjoyed Korea. I enjoyed being part of that culture, and, and I commanded the a battalion that was called the Guns of the DMZ. My my mission was to support the demilitarized zone, so my battalion was right up on the DMZ uh, in Korea. We would be the first to fight if war ever broke out in Korea. In 1986 to 1988, you were Deputy Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army Five Corps in Frankfurt, Germany. Tell us about that. Right. That was fun. I was... Uh, I had a very responsible job, and of course, I hadn't been to Europe in a long time. I'd been to Korea, and so it was really great to take my family to live in Frankfurt, and uh, my daughters gained their appreciation of foreign cultures and living overseas, and my youngest daughter became fluent in German, so it was time well spent, and I really enjoyed my time there. And it was as uh, the Soviet Union was crumbling, the beginnings of all that, and so it was Interesting to sit there in Frankfurt and watch all this happen across the border. In 1990, you commanded NCOs at the U.S. Army Field Artillery School at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. 
I did. That was my brigade command at the artillery training center in Fort Sterling. Again, something I really enjoyed, training young men and women to, to serve. I really enjoyed my time there. You became Commandant of the United States Army War College. How did that happen? Well, I have a Ph.D., and so therefore I'm ideally suited for academic postings. So it was a logical choice to pick me to be Commandant, although there were other general officers in contention for the job. Really the, about the best job in the Army because it, I had my own post. I had responsibility for training lieutenant colonels to become generals. And it was just a delightful experience. And I started writing while I was there. I'd written a book on artillery, and then I'd written another book on the Gulf War. And this was an opportunity to start my third book, which I did while I was a commandant. And it's a wonderful place. We had a 12,000-square-foot set of quarters reserves just for the commandant, and uh, we lived a wonderful life for those three years. You also testified in Congress about the uniqueness of, of war and that you can't depend just on technology. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And that's been a theme of mine pretty much my whole career. And it came from my experience in Vietnam. Is that, you know, the most technologically gifted country in the world still has to learn how to fight close. And when you fight close, it's not a battle of technology. It's a battle of will. And it's all about what's in the human dimension and the human spirit. And sometimes in the Army, or in the military for that matter, we don't pay enough attention to that. We're more focused on the machines, you know, the weapons, the vehicles and all that, and less focused on the, the heart of the soldier. And so, you know, while I was in the Army and after I got out of the Army, I spent much of my time proselytizing for the human dimension in war. Yes, I would think a lot of people just think, you know, you just pound the hell out of them with the artillery, and when you get there, there's not going to be anything left of them for you to fight. But that's not the the real world. Well, we sh we sure learned that sure learned that that was wrong. I certainly did. I mean, you shoot a thousand rounds a day at a single point on the ground, you'd think you'd kill some people, but the effects of artillery against soldiers who are dug in is pretty small. In civilian life, after you you spent 34 years in the United States Army, you get out, then what did you do? Well, I was president of a university, Walden University, and uh, after that I I left uh, to go start my own company. The company was called Colgen, and I was a consultant mostly for uh, the military uh, on issues related to strategy and and I started writing a lot, and then I started appearing on television. So my business lasted for about 13 years, and I, I left it in 2013 uh, to completely retire. Well, you do have a legacy behind you, and people look at your resume and say, wow, this, this guy has basically done it all. Yeah. I guess that's probably true. I read your... Uh, uh, opinion piece about, I watched my friend die in Vietnam 50 years ago. Leaders must understand the cost of combat. I, I guess what I said was that in my father's war, we died by the hundreds of thousands. And in my war, we died by the tens of thousands. And in today's war, we die by the tens. And, and I just don't want the American people to be so enamored with war or to see war as a solution to our problems uh, when the casualty rates are so low. And because just because the casualty rates are low now 
doesn't mean in a future war they won't be horrific, particularly if we fight against something, something like Russia or China. So it's very important to remember that the costs of war vary, and don't be lulled into a sense of self-satisfaction because recent casualties have been low. That doesn't suggest that they won't be high in a future conflict. General Bob Scales, thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Stephen. I really enjoyed our time together. Well, that wraps up another special episode of Fucat Stories. If you'd like to participate in a future Fucat Stories podcast, email your contact information to fucatstories at gmail.com. That's fucatstories at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Fucat Stories podcast. I'm Saigon Steve. <laughs>